Our reading this morning is taken from James 3, verses 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Before we begin, I want to let you all know that my talk uh, incorporates a lot of different stories. And these stories will range from personal situations I've experienced uh, to moments in scripture. But the purpose in doing so is to address how we understand and potentially should use wisdom, both individually, but more so as God's church. And so, I am a pastor. And those are the words I respond with when someone asks me that question, what, what do you do? The interesting thing about that question for me is it makes me experience polar opposite feelings. And what ultimately decides my feeling is the person and the context where that question is asked. I'm sure we all encounter these moments. It's a natural part of life uh, to meet new and different people. And so that question is one of the first things to be asked because it is typically used to find common ground and to make conversation. Now the problem for me is, unless you have experience or knowledge of being part of a church, the role of a pastor may not make sense. And so whenever I'm in a setting and I'm able to sense the other person's experience, if that person feels safe to me, I typically respond with a sense of confidence in my role and who I am. If not, I end up feeling very hesitant or nervous, and my response ends up being from a place of fear. And the reason for that was a situation I experienced where I felt personally attacked for what I believe and the career path I followed. This was the summer after my second year at Tyndale studying my undergrad. My uncle was getting married in Florida and our whole family was invited. The wedding was beautiful and one of the most um, beautiful images that come to my mind was actually of this one guy whose sole job was to carve steak off a rotating spit. It was amazing, but it also has nothing to do with this, but it was just something I really liked. Now, I was seated at a table with no one I knew, and I assume it was because I was too old for the kids' table, because I'm in my late 20s at this point, or mid-20s by this point, um, and so I'm too old for the kids' table, or there wasn't enough room uh, at my parents'. But it didn't really matter for me because I'm decently extroverted, I'm also friendly, and getting to know people isn't too hard for me. Also, if I hated my time at that table, I could just stand at the carving station with that guy, because no matter what, I end up winning. But as the conversation begins and all of the performance and stuff settle down, that question was asked and I immediately felt uneasy. 
This was the first time I felt hesitation because I never realized I would have to eventually say to a stranger of an unknown faith background that I'm studying theology to become a pastor. Before Tyndale, I was planning on becoming a police officer, and I went through a lot of training to do that, and so this conversation wasn't hard because it didn't lead to the theology and being a pastor. And so in this situation, I did my best to avoid that answer, and I tried to change the topic because lying felt wrong, but the truth just felt more awkward. And so I tried to mislead them by saying, oh, I'm a student, and I'm studying at a school in Toronto. But then the conversation goes deeper. They respond with, oh, what, what are you studying? And thinking on the spot, I'm like, oh, well, I, I'm, taking, uh, I'm doing a BA in religious studies, which was great because the, it, it was actually what my degree was, but it was also vague enough that I didn't have to go into more detail. But then they followed up with, oh, that's really interesting. What does that help you do? What do you want to become from it? And so now that it's unavoidable, I respond saying, I'm going to be a pastor. And after clarifying that I hope to be a Christian pastor who works in a church, their response cemented my hesitation. Without using their exact words, because, you know, due to the nature of their language, they essentially asked me, do you really believe in that garbage? It was not a pleasant feeling, and it really hurt. And it made a weird pit in my stomach, but I couldn't not say anything bad. I had to say something because otherwise they would win and I would have misrepresented God. And so at this point, it, it was time for me to use the accumulation of two years worth of theological training. And so in that moment, I was able to recall all the defensive points I learned in philosophy to justify the existence of God. I used theological and historical arguments I learned in class to try and prove the power and authority of scripture. And by the end of it, I felt as though I did a really good job. No one died. There wasn't a massive fight, despite the one really drunk person egging me on. And I felt I argued back well and efficiently. And thank goodness, thank God, they left. No matter how I felt by the end of that, the whole experience was cemented in who I am. I learned that my calling as a pastor will cause division if I don't enter those conversations carefully prepared. I realize I also need to learn more so I can make better and stronger arguments to win that fight. Because they had said stuff I wasn't ready for. And so I felt I had options on my table. I could devote more time and energy to improve my understanding, or I could avoid the topic altogether. I decided since I'm in school for this, I'd probably be better equipped by the end of my degree to, to tackle such hard conversations. And all the while, you know, while I, while I said this wasn't technically avoiding it, whenever I would enter situations like this, I would mislead the person asking me that question. And I would say it by saying, oh, I work in IT as an AV person. And it wasn't true. And that uh, gave me comfort in avoiding that awkward situation I was afraid of. Wisdom is not the same thing as knowledge. Any person can claim to know what is true. And we all can very easily be acquainted with facts, truths, or principles that advocate for why we are doing what we do or believe what we believe. I'm not solely speaking from a Christian context. This applies to all areas of life. Wisdom is a life tool, and it's meant to help us navigate life when we don't know how to move forward. 
It's not just about knowing what's good for you to do. It also is about applying that knowledge and those past experience into our everyday lives. Wisdom in this regard is kind of like a compass. And I, I would want to use Google Maps, but uh, the analogy doesn't quite work well. But a compass helps the user navigate them to their desired, nav uh, their desired destination. Compasses are magnetized to point towards uh, the, sorry, are magnetized to point north, and so the user is able to mark and trace their coordinates with a map, not only to know where they're moving forward, but also to know where they are in relation to where they began. Wisdom ultimately uses the culmination of our knowledge and our experiences. It can then be enhanced by the wisdom of others. And collectively, the group of people using this wisdom, they move forward and they progress. This creates communities, societies, cities, our country. How people groups collectively use wisdom, it marks and makes them distinguishable from other people groups. And this is a large part of our history as God's people. In the origins of our faith, we are reminded that our roots grow from Judaism. And in Judaism, we are reminded of this deep history with traditions going back not only to the time of the Hebrews with Moses, but beyond that, beyond that time, back to the time with a man named Abram. Abram was someone who had an encounter with God in a way that changed his whole life. Out of nowhere, he was told by an unseen being to uproot and move his wife and servants to a place that was not his home. In this new place that God tells Abram to go, you know, he says, this will be the home of your descendants. And so in that moment, Abram, on, Abram honored God by building an altar. Because even though he wasn't going to receive this promise of land, which was a big deal back then, he was to be the father to the people group that would inhabit it. Abram's earthly wisdom until he encountered God would not have led him to make a kind of choice like this. It would have never taken him to where he was going. He received a distinct revelation from God, and he gave up a certainty in being where he was with his own people for an uncertainty and went out not knowing where he was taking his wife and ultimately the people he was responsible for. Willingly, Abram, Abram surrendered, surrendered, and, uh, surrendered the seen for the unseen. And that passage from James we read this morning identifies two forms of wisdom. There's earthly wisdom, but then there's another wisdom that is said to be from heaven. Earthly wisdom is rooted in our sin, and sin rearranges how we love and experience life. We use wisdom in this way to justify what we want and are doing, even if and when we know it hurts other people. Earthly wisdom is primarily concerned with self-preservation, and so a lot of our choices when we use this wisdom end up coming from a place of fear, anger, greed. It's destructive, and it provokes opportunity for disorder. And oftentimes we take the guise of, uh, oftentimes it, this earthly wisdom takes on the guise as heavenly wisdom because we see how it makes sense, and it says that it's probably from God. Heavenly wisdom does not make sense to us all the time. In fact, it really doesn't make sense at all immediately. And you need to reflect and look back on your knowledge and your experiences to understand where and why God has brought us here. Heavenly wisdom is concerned primarily for God's kingdom. And so all the navigational choices we make using that kind of wisdom ends up being concerned with the benefit of this kingdom of God's. 
But God's kingdom is his people. And sometimes when we encounter choices that reflect who we are, God is asking us to use wisdom in a heavenly way to bring out that person that he created us to be. These choices may seem small, but they are significant. And they, they can be choices to wear, you know, it can be a choice as simple as to wear a mask in public. Or even asking that question, what does dating look like to me as I try to become more like Jesus? God's wisdom doesn't make sense. And sometimes when we, ask, when we are asked to rely on his wisdom to wait, we feel this pressure to act and make a different decision. And there are plenty of stories in illustrate, uh, that illustrate that in scripture. But the one I want to focus on is with Samuel when he's asked by Israel for a king. Up until this point, Israel was governed by God through Samuel and his sons. But the elders of that time approached Samuel and they as a people group wanted, but they, not, not wanted, they demanded a king. Because, and the reasoning was Samuel was too old and his sons were corrupt. Now this is a moment where the, the choice to use wisdom was given, but earthly wisdom was used to, to demand a king. God's people were never meant to have a king. What's incredibly ironic is in their earthly wisdom, a king makes sense. They're aware of the other nations and how the, those people are governed, they, but they have a God of creation, and that's not enough. And it's not enough because they can't see him. And so in their wisdom, they saw the power that a king would have in leading them against other people and other nations who they saw as their enemies. And I read this story in 1 Samuel, and I can't help but wonder why some of these people who are making these arguments clearly saw corruption and did nothing to address to fix it. Maybe they did, but it doesn't say. It just says they, they demanded a king. But when I read this, it feels like the choice to want a king was made out of fear for not having one. Someone, sorry, um, they wanted someone they could physically see and believe in. And it was made in part because they didn't have anyone that was willing to step up and lead as Samuel did. The earthly wisdom used here um, assumed that there would be a greater power and freedom in having a king to rule them. But really what they wanted continued to restrict them as people and put more limits on their call to be a light to the other nations. If they really thought about this, the problem of corruption was inevitable. Samuel had corrupted sons. Sure, maybe, yes. But even if this supposed king was to be better than Samuel in leading them, what's to say his sons wouldn't be any less corrupt? We eventually see that Saul as a corrupt leader uh, sorry, we eventually see that Saul becomes a corrupt leader. But we also see God, out of love for his people, anoint a child to be king. And that seems like the most extreme opposite to what would be a wise choice. It makes absolutely no sense. A young shepherd boy who would later go on to, meet, uh, to, de to defeat a massive giant when no one else would uh, even try. If they... Um, this boy would go on to be a king because heavenly wisdom saw that since these people are going to demand a king anyway and make one for themselves, if they won't allow the God of creation to re who rescued them out of Egypt and called them as a people from Abram, you know, if God can't lead this people, it should at least be someone who can lead them closer to being the people God knows they will become. David has a lot of stories too. 
But one in particular, I think, shows in fullness of why God chose David to be king is in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And it shows a story where David is no longer a boy and is running in fear of his life because Saul, you know, who, who is um, now afraid of David becoming more powerful than himself, he's chasing him and he's trying to kill him. And when looking at David, he was filled with anger and envy and jealousy. But instead of admitting his own failings as a ruler and a leader, his wisdom led him to believe killing David was the best answer. While hunting for David, David, Saul goes into a cave where David and his men are hiding. And while going into the cave, Saul is using it as a bathroom. Um, and, and I don't want to imagine how, but, uh, but it just says that he is. But at some point, David is given this opportunity to kill Saul. And in, in this pivotal moment, David has a choice to use wisdom. The same wisdom Saul used to hunt David down would lead this future king to kill the present one. But instead, David does something else. David cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. And then later, after Saul is finished using the cave, he leaves. And David exits also. And right after exiting, David confronts Saul and essentially shows the opportunity he had to kill him with that cut piece of robe. In this story, David embodies heavenly wisdom. In other stories, we see him also embody earthly wisdom. And so I can imagine the struggle David would have had uh, in this cave. He's exhausted. He's hungry. He's scared. He's with men who have backed him up, who are also equally as tired and exhausted. And their reasoning is flawless. I imagine this being incredibly tempting for, G uh, for David because he wasn't perfect. But in the same way Jesus rejects Peter, David rejects the request of his men to kill Saul in that moment. And he makes this incredibly unimaginable choice using wisdom that doesn't come from within ourselves. I can see why God anointed him as a boy. I can see David in this story. And it actually reminds me of the, the Proverbs. In, uh, sorry, it reminds me of Proverbs 9 when it says, Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. David had a righteous heart. And it allowed him to sense the heavenly wisdom that God was leading him with. Earthly wisdom leads us to making enemies of people who are made in God's image. All people are made in God's image. Yet there's a pressure to constantly enter conflict with one another. And one of our biggest temptations as God's people that we face all the time, and it happens in the past, it happens in the present, and chances are it's going to be in the future is that we are tempted to make enemies of the people who are different than us or, believe, or who believe and worship differently than us. And the most powerful moments where, I, where this is evidently displayed for me is, is any story that has Jesus and the Pharisees. These religious leaders instructed uh, the Jewish people on how to worship God. And they enforced that law and expected it to be followed exactly because they feared the consequences that occurred from when the Babylonians invaded um, years ago. And Jesus, during this whole, his whole ministry, he shows a deeper understanding holistically of what worship to God is. And he uses scripture to show it. The entirety of scripture as a narrative unfolds to this crucial point where Jesus encounters earthly wisdom in its full as it's persecuting him and crucifying him. And instead of standing against it in opposition, Jesus responds with peace 
and willingly suffers the entire weight of human sin as a result of their earthly wisdom. As Christians, we use the collection of knowledge and experiences gathered together in our scriptures. This is one of, if not, the most important tool for us to use. Jesus shows us scripture is meant to be understood in whole. It acts as a map for our compass. The thing about using wisdom in scripture is that we can, we can easily trick ourselves into thinking that we are effectively using wis- heavenly wisdom. And the Pharisees are a perfect example of that. No matter how much they read, studied, and memorized, we see that they missed the point. God cares about our heart's desires, and he wants our heart's desires to be in line with his. James says that heavenly wisdom is first of all pure, and then it's peace-loving. It's considerate, it's submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And so if you weren't paying attention until now, don't worry about it, because here's my main point. Wisdom is what we use to move forward and navigate unknown territory. Earthly wisdom is used to make navigational decisions that are concerned with self-preservation. Our wisdom in this regard is also rooted in our sin. And these choices are often made out of fear or greed because it's easier and it feels more tempting. God's wisdom is concerned for his kingdom. Again, the kingdom is his people. And this leads us to navigate and make change for peace unity, and real equality for people, whether they follow him or not. And these choices are much harder, but it leads us in the direction of God's spirit. Now, when I think back to that time, that first time that I was asked that awful question of, you know, what do I do? I remember thinking really highly of myself that night. I remember going home and thanking God that night that he gave me the right words to say in response to what I was able, uh, sorry, that he was able to give me the right words to say in response and that I was able to represent my faith well. I thought I was wise because that argument made me feel like I had to win. But I don't think it did. Looking back now, I actually see a wasted opportunity on my part. Looking back, that fight only really happened and continued because I kept it going. That situation could not have resolved in peace because I wouldn't let it. And I was completely wrong. I want to address a situation that is very sensitive for a moment. There's, uh, it's been circulating various forms of news and social media, and, for, um, and I have a feeling it'll gain more attention. But some of you may have uh, been aware of a church that we are connected to denominationally, where the lead pastor of that church came out as a transgender woman during their Sunday morning sermon. Now imagine some of you are watching this and you may be wondering, and questioning what it is I'm going to say next. I can also imagine that many of you are feeling just as uncomfortable with what I'm saying as I am myself. But that feeling that we're all having, that's what I want to talk about. That feeling that automatically gets us ready to put up all of our defenses. That is what I want to address. And I want to make it very clear right now. I am not entering a conversation about transgender identity. I'm addressing that feeling and that pressure which surrounds this topic, but not just this topic, all hot-button theological topics that make us feel this way. Talking about this today has been really difficult for me. 
As a pastor, I've been very careful in how I engage with others about this conversation because the nature of this topic is sensitive. And if I'm not careful, people will react negatively to what I have to say or may take what I say out of context, which somehow feels worse. The thing about this pressure is it's incredibly unfair. We have allowed ourselves to believe we need to pick a side and we need to fight the other side. Picking sides doesn't lead to peace. There's nothing about this pressure that feels remotely as though it is from heaven. It immediately leads to conflict. And the problem I faced while preparing for today is that unfortunately, silence is often automatically interpreted as a stand against, even if it's not true. And so I'm addressing this pressure, and I want to call it out for what it is. It is foolish earthly wisdom that we've decided is important. We don't need to pick sides. We are capable of creating and having a complex community that celebrates and worships God together. I have no idea or clue as to what this looks like perfectly. I also don't know how to get there. But I have hope and faith in Christ that we as a people made in God's image will discern together where his spirit is leading. And this requires many things. And and a lot of them are what we have been talking about over the last few weeks, over the last few series. But there's one thing that gives me, you know, a glimmer of hope in all, uh, in all of this. And it shows me that we can have this complex community. Because I am a pastor. And as a pastor, I have a certain authority in speaking from Scripture. But at the same time, I've studied at a school where professors who taught me how to read Scripture and to think theologically are actually also a part of this congregation. I've also learned from a significant number of other people who have preached from this platform using the same book that I read from. I have learned from Victoria, from Monica, from Margaret, from Sam and Greg and Jean. All of these people have taught me something new about who God is, and I'm not sure I would have learned it all by myself. But at the same time, I know that there are areas theologically where I disagree with all of them. So if this is about who's right, then which one of us is it? I don't think heavenly wisdom leads us this way. Instead, I, 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 think, I think it leads us to listen to all different people because it's okay to be a church that disagrees on things because that's how we grow. And so as I end my time, I want to leave you with uh, words that really stuck out to me from someone uh, who, who I consider wiser than myself. And they said, heavenly wisdom is knowing you're not alone in life. And it ultimately leads us to trust God that he will figure it out. Amen.